If you're looking to build a financial services franchise where you're going to have the most opportunity to influence and build loyalty really is with that younger consumer segment, because that could be their very much their first exposure to a financial services product. Hi, and welcome to Credit Shift. My name is Paul Sweeney. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Webio. This podcast will be about how to embrace the digital future of credit and collections and all things AI and technology. Join us for the conversations that matter around credit and collections. My co-host is Dan Blagojevich, now Director of Decision Sciences and Machine Learning at the ever-growing Optima Partners. And our special guest today is Sean O'Toole, a very experienced executive in the financial services area. Sean has been a leader at such companies as American Express, First Data, Western Union and Affirm, and was also entrepreneur in residence at innovation and global accelerator startup bootcamp. Sean started, built and sold his own company Red Wage back in 2014, which was early into the underserved and unserved market spaces. Sean, I was thinking about the variety in your background and how it centers on payments and debit cards. And we have had an incredible amount of innovation around credit cards, debit cards, and corporate spending cards recently. And it seems that a lot of value here is in the control that they offer on spending or in the information that they help you gather. I was hoping that you might be able to give us a quick tour of what's happening in this space, but maybe a good place to start might be... uh, I've always been fascinated by the psychological or behavioral aspects of these kind of products. Like, what makes for a debit card? What makes for a credit card? What's, what's actually the, the psychological or behavioral aspects of these products? I was wondering maybe you could kick off and help us explore that topic. Yeah. Hey, Paul, thanks uh, for having me on here. Happy to uh, address that topic. Clearly, for... Um, A lot of my experience and perspective is in the U.S., so I'll kind of give it from the U.S. perspective. I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's pretty unique about the U.S. is the number of cards that are in an individual consumer's wallet, right? You could probably have anywhere in the region of four to five cards. And from a completely utilitarian point of view, one might say, well, maybe you just need two cards. You need a debit card that's attached to your bank account. And you need one credit card that has a a rather large line of credit, hopefully, and that's all you need to use. However, we know that financial services, while it may be very utilitarian, it's actually also very much an emotional product. And um, what we see and what um, what still holds true in the U.S. is consumers really segment psychologically in their minds how they think about their cards. So for a lot of consumers, their debit card is what they use for everyday spent purchases, going to the grocery, the drugstore, paying for uh, gas. And credit cards is maybe what they use for those uh, products where there's like a higher uh, value associated with it, maybe gives them the option to uh, revolve. And I think over the last like 10 years, we've really seen a growing use of rewards cards and particularly cashback cards. And as a result of that, I think we're also seeing a a sort of real bifurcation in the market here in the U.S. where for consumers that are below a certain amount um, who don't maybe have the FICO scores that allow them to get a lot of credit, they become more and more debit dominant. And debit is really sort of taking over the role of cash. And we still use checks in the U.S., though a lot less over, over the last few years. 
those consumers that are kind of below that income amount are a lot more debit dominant. But for consumers that are more affluent, there's really been a proliferation of cards. And what you see consumers doing is they're looking to really try to maximize what the benefits are associated with these cards. So I think you know, you will still find it if you ask people to open up their wallet and even show the number of credit cards that they have and ask them how they use those cards and in what situations uh, they use them, they're going to tell you their reasoning and rationale. And so that points to this, you know, psychological effect, essentially, as to how consumers think about their wallet. And it's all really quite unique. Wow. Uh, Dan, you've got some background in this area. Do, do you have uh, any comments on that? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting US perspective, because if, if we kind of superpose that uh, or juxtapose that or against what's happening in the UK, it is quite a different dynamic and a different picture uh, in so much that in the UK, there is far less of a distinct difference between debit payment and credit payments. Um, Part of that stems from the types of, of providers of those services, uh, most notably the retailers who have a financial services arm, um, who quite actively encourage the use of, of credit cards as a way of everyday spending. So if we think about the two of the largest UK supermarkets, they, they have a, a very uh, active credit card proposition, which is specifically targeted at everyday spending, so much so that uh, the, the reward scheme itself is, is incentivizing people to use that as a, as a, uh, as a way of spending on everyday services. Um, the, the look and feel of payments between debit and credit in the UK is, is, is uh, virtually indistinguishable. So if, uh, if we did a straw poll on the streets of people who, you know, what did you use to, to buy your groceries yesterday? Uh, a large proportion, not majority, but a large proportion wouldn't be able to remember whether it was a debit or a credit card. So there is much more of a blurring. Uh, we might talk later in this podcast around the fact that people aren't even using plastic anymore. They're using their watches and, and, and phones to tap. But that's, that's, that, that's um, a more recent phenomenon. But uh, I w- yeah, I would certainly say that in the UK, uh, that distinction is far, uh, far uh, smaller than, 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 Sean, what you described. Whether that's better or worse, whether it's empowering people, giving them more choice, or whether it's getting them into more debt, I think that's for uh, for um, uh, for individuals to opine themselves. Yeah, I think one of the major differences that we see between the U.S. and 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 the U.K. markets in that regard, and in many ways, the U.S. is really quite unique, is the number of financial institutions. So you have over a thousand financial institutions in the U.S. and and I don't have the data in front of me, but maybe the top ten banks still maybe are just maybe around fifty percent of the, the the market share. And consumers bank a lot at like large regionals or maybe even small what we call community banks, credit unions. Most of those banks today are are very much in the business of capturing uh, a customer's uh, basically what we call checking account, where there's a debit card associated. Uh, with it. And just because of the like size of the US market, being in the credit space is very much a scale, scale game. And when you look at the US market compared to 30 years ago, the number of what we would call like, you know, large credit card issuers is really less than 10 in the US, which is pretty remarkable given the um, number of financial institutions. But it just shows how difficult it is for a lot of smaller players, even large regional players who may have $50 billion assets on their books 
to really compete in the space. So you've had this real distinction between uh, most of the banks who are really looking to kind of capture the customer's DDA account from a lending standpoint, focus on the consumer a lot more on products like mortgages, auto loans, et cetera. And the credit card space is very much, very concentrated on a number of large players that are really playing an arms race around the product innovation that they can bring to market. So I would say that unlike in the, U- in, in the UK, US consumers are probably pretty well aware of what form of payment they are using to pay, whether it's debit or credit. They can see that value being decremented from their bank account when it's debit. And in credit, they're probably quite conscious of what the, the line is. Clearly, in a lot of very affluent consumers, you know, people really don't notice and they're paying off their credit card statement uh, every, every month. But um, really, in the US, I would say compared to um, the UK and other parts of Europe, individual consumers probably have a little bit more awareness around the forms of payment they're using and what the funding source is um, compared to what I've seen elsewhere. I I was interested, uh, uh, Sean, in um, what you thought about maybe psychology or emotion behind buy now, pay later offers, which have really grown significantly in the last five years. And do you think that, I mean, is there particular characteristics of, of why you think that's that's boomed so hard? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can only give you sort of like my perspective from what I've seen, particularly in the early days of, of, of a firm. You know, the, the sort of buy now, pay later concept or the point of sale financing concept has been around for a long time. You know, as Dan pointed out, you, you can have stores that are offering their own credit product. And for folks that are, you know, older than me, though I'm getting up there. Um, they remember the day when you could go into the appliance store and if you buy the refrigerator, you can finance it at the point of sale, right? That essentially is like a buy now, pay later product, credit type product. What we noticed is, and I think in particular, the sort of tectonic factor that really drove the buy now, pay later opportunity in the US was the Great Recession and the impact that it had on younger consumers in particular. And so one of the things we really learned in the early days of the firm is how much younger consumers really wanted to try to avoid credit. And this idea of like getting a credit card where, you know, the, the, the repayment terms were stretched out over long periods of time. And it's a difference in generations. I think my generation in, in, in the US was very much looking at credit cards as essentially a form of like financing arbitrage. If I could move a balance from one credit card to another and get 0% for 12 months, that was a really great arbitrage, right? In terms of the cost of financing. But I think the younger generation at that time saw the devastating impact credit had when people lost their jobs in the Great Recession and their aversion to credit is really quite high. I think what's also unique in the US environment compared to the rest of the world is how burdened young people are with student loan debt. So the whole point, so the whole sort of issue of credit weighs a lot more heavily on consumers. And in the early days of when there was experimentation um, with the firm with um, you know, merchants, there was a, much more of a focus on higher value items, um, such as electronics, jewelry, high-end clothing. What we learned was that younger consumers in particular were much more attracted to it. But what, what it really attracted to them was the ability to sort of basically set their payment terms to be relatively short. 
So when we give consumers the ability to choose between a three-month, six-month, or nine-month repayment term, they generally chose something between three and six months because the idea, it gave them control versus put it on a credit card and the idea of paying it off over time and just make the minimum balance while it sounds like from an economic standpoint is probably maybe the best thing to do, depending upon the underlying rate. Psychologically, it was something, it was just not attractive. The idea that they could pay off their debt within a short period of time gave that control. And um, we see that uh, in the early days of Buy Now, Pay Later was very much a product that was attractive to younger consumers. It's become a lot more... um, normalized now going more mainstream and i think that's a function of quite frankly that buy now pay later is uh, the penetration is just so substantial on almost every e-commerce website that it's the effect of marketing it's the if like there's a lot more um there's a lot more factors going into what is um causing its uptake but in the early days it was very much a case of it gave consumers the ability to control um how long they were going to be in debt and the idea that I can buy this high-end Gucci bag um, and pay off pay it off in six months was you know psychologically very attractive well I, I was going to just to add, on, add on to that I mean in the UK the dynamics of that is has changed quite um, or the drivers of that have changed quite significantly over the, say over the past eight eight to nine years sadly in in more recent times over the past two years or so the 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 driver for buy now pay later has has been in large part the cost of living crisis so it's not it's not a um, uh, by by choice that some people an increasing proportion of people are turning to that it's 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 out of out of necessity uh, what what we did observe certainly here in the UK maybe through kind of 2013 to, to 19 uh, uh, a real explosion of interest-free, uh, very long-duration interest-free credit cards. Uh, we were talking about forty-eight months uh, interest-free credit cards. I mean, that, that's that's four years for free free credits, uh, and 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 lenders were actively competing with each other who who can offer the longest interest-free uh, period on on their uh, on their lending products, and that in part stimulated the use of credit as opposed to debit uh, within the UK. That did retrench quite significantly, just just as as um, COVID uh, uh, c- came around, and actually overall indebtedness did drop. Uh, unsecured uh, levels of indebtedness in the UK did drop over the over the COVID period. So people were actually paying down their uh, unsecured lending and then turning more to to debit. Um, we are seeing a reversal of that now, as I say, more because of uh, the cost of living uh, pressures that are that are coming in. Um, but I, I think. It's the the buy now pay later uh, phenomenon. It it is very sticky. It's you know we we we've seen it uh, uh, stick around during both ups uh, the up cycles and the down cycles in the in, in within the economy. So there might be very different drivers for it, but it seems to be a uh, behavior that's uh, in some way uh, uh, feels natural to to the general population. I think the consumers also, you know, think differently around buy now, pay later and cre- and credit cards as as obviously they're two very different payment instruments. But I think uh, I, I don't think they believe, uh, look at them interchangeably. Right. I mean, so in the US, if one applies for a credit card and let's say you get a, you know, fifteen hundred dollar line of credit or two thousand dollar line of credit, 
um, you know, what the what younger folks in particular are are concerned about is, okay, now I can I'll take that and you know, I'm gonna like lose my discipline about being able to manage that, right? And 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 rather than you know, using my debit card to pay for the for groceries or or going out and, and restaurant, I'll use this credit card, and now all of a sudden I'm gonna, you know, before you know it, hit that two hundred uh, two thousand dollar limit. On a buy now pay later, because you know you, you're 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 being choiceful about making that purchase and around you know that I'm going to finance it and I'm going to make the decision uh, over the time period and the term in which I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, pay for that. I think it, I think it appeals to consumers because it has a lot more of a control element. And when you look at what the average balances are for buy now, pay later versus credit card, they're, they're dramatically lower, obviously, versus credit cards. So from a, uh, a pure sort of financial management standpoint in terms of trying to avoid getting into trouble, you know, use and buy now, pay later, where you're able to have these like very short terms and, and requires you to have the discipline of paying it back makes it is very appealing to, you know, uh, like younger consumers, lower income consumers than this sort of like unsecured credit facility where, you know, before you know it, you're, you're, you've hit the limits and now you got to like reverse, revert back to, you know, using your debit card for every, every day spent per, uh, purposes. It, it, you did say that word again, uh, Sean, control and having control over finances being a major kind of psychological motivator, um, which was surprising to me how strongly you rated that as like a, an element of, of the psychological product. And it, it did remind me, I used to be obsessed by checkouts in, in shops, like genuinely obsessed. And um, the, one of the best I ever experienced was in Limerick in Brown Thomas. And we were buying an ex- expensive cream for Charlotte. She was getting some some moisturizer or something. And um, as the woman was get the assistant was getting the the bag ready and putting the the cream in the bag, and she was stuffing it, she was putting. She's saying, "I'll put in little, um, uh, you know, free samples and stuff." And oh, we'll get this other one as well. And do you do this? And she was chatting away, and the bag was lovely and all secured up. And then we tapped the you know, you turn around and the credit card has been run and you're leaving the store and you have a lovely bag, you've paid. And that most difficult of situations is where you look at the actual amount of money you paid for that thing uh, was kind of avoid that moment of transaction actually causes physical pain if you are paying in cash. Like, so if you put on the, the dollars on the counter and you're paying it out, you go, oh my God, look at that money. Oh my God. And if you're doing it with a debit card, you also feel a degree of psychological and physical hit on it. But if you pay with a credit card, it's tomorrow's money. So it doesn't hit you the same same way. That's right. And and we've seen this across the US. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't underestimate the impact that you know we're still living with the consequences of of the great recession and we're still living with the fact that un, un, uh, really until uh, the the covid crisis hit real wages in the US for most Americans really didn't go up very much and probably didn't keep pace with uh, you know inflation and we see it in our, the general mix of data uh, from the fed the data from the fed reserve around payment types debit usage has exploded compared to credit. And while overall payments volume is going up, debit's share now is well over 50% and continues to continues to grow. So I think Paul to, like you're saying is, you know, for consumers, um, you know, money's money's tight. 
control is important. And it's actually going to be quite interesting to see what happens here in the US, uh, like around credit and credit trends, um, particularly for younger consumers, how will impact buy now, pay later, because the moratorium on student loan repayments has been, is, is, uh, has now finished and con- consumers are going to have to start paying back their student loans starting in September of this year. So we, we think that's actually going to have an impact on, uh, on people's discretionary spend because, you know, those like five to $800 uh, payments that were going towards, you know, um, purchases um, now have to be redirected to repayments of student loans. So, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out in the U.S. market. The, the UK is, although it is a different different dynamic here, it, it is trending in some in, in some part towards that, uh, largely because uh, uh, it's interesting you mentioned the student loans. Uh, unfortunately, the UK is in a is this trending very rapidly towards a position where uh, practically most universities are charging uh, larger fees, not in the in let's say not in the way that they had had done in the past. So there is. M- Definitely a lot more pressure on 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 the younger generation in a similar way to what you're observing in the U.S. So yes, there's still I think in the U.K. less of a distinction between those two types of payment uh, payment mechanisms. I think that will change over time. Um, actually, one of the things that is is certainly changing is the regulator is is keeping a much stronger eye on uh, on. Uh, uh, how, how how customers are treated both for, after the onset of PSD two, but more recently the uh, 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 the uh, the Consumer Duty Act, which replaced um, treating customers fairly. So there's much more of an onus on lenders being responsible in the way that they extend credit credit lines, which I think as a consequence is 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 having that uh, lenders will be less uh, racy, let's say, in pushing credit where actually debit should be should be used as a primary mechanism. Sean, just to tie up this section of our conversation, uh, you, you've been an advisor to some very large companies and some very small companies. I, I've also worked across a number of uh, technology companies and startups in particular. Uh, and I just I just don't see the psychology or behavioral aspects of these kind of decisions as front and center as 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 maybe they should be. Have, have you noticed anything about that in your own practice? Yeah, I mean, very, very much so. If you look at fintech in general and what's led the fintech revolution, right, it's, it's been the technology side. And so many of these companies um, have been built by engineers, and they've been fantastic companies, right? You look at Stripe, obviously an example there uh, with, with, you know, two Irish guys building it. You look at, uh, companies like Square, um, you know, Audion, et cetera. Um, even like all of the services that, uh, even on the buy now, pay later side, when it, when it initially came out, most of the, most of the sort of founders around it and most of the like early management are very much technology people and engineers, right? So um, many of the aspects clearly that, that I've been talking about around the psychological effect, you know, you're more likely to think about those, uh, that coming out of like the marketing organizations, right? Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's been a sort of characteristic of fintech over the last sort of 10 years, how much of it has been driven by the technology side and it's technology that has kind of like unlocked 
those components. And to a great degree, you know, the marketing component office has, you know, maybe not kept up. And, and, you know, even when you look at fintech, like in, in the US, um, I would say that most of that innovation, again, is sort of like more on the back end. It's the plumbing, it's the infrastructure. Right. There hasn't really been a lot of like many new net new credit card issuers in the US. Right. When you think about it, even though you have these massive pools of capital that are beyond the banking sector, you know, where you've had like great examples are people like on deck capital, right. And credit karma in terms of, in terms of some of the things that they've done. But most of the innovation has really been focused more on the sort of like infrastructure technology backend side of the equation and a lot less on on the front end side and i think actually um we still have more room to run on that i mean when you look at a, a lot of what's happening around embedded finance as as a key trend i mean what essentially you know that is sort of the further and further integration of software and payments to make the the checkout process much easier for consumers to you know give them options to either finance that transaction at that point in time uh, uh, etc um Again, that's a lot more driven by the technology side, and I think you know what what we've seen is is the you know the marketing side of the equation needs to catch up with that. Like you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to build a great consumer brand, you need a lot of marketing DNA in your company, um, which is maybe why as well a, a lot of the um, you know traction on the B two B side is is a lot more has been a lot more uh, a lot deeper. Um, than on the BDC side. Consumers hard, right? Consumers hard. Yeah, essentially what, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head and actually in, in, in the UK as well, what's happening is that basically the, the fintech uh, disruptors, they've, they've built banking around technology, not technology around banking. Uh, so that, that's, that's fundamentally different approach to yeah and i I think when you see that that there is that challenge i mean i think the the plight of neobanks in the u.s is a really great example like um i just you know to make a broad statement which you know uh, now that i'm american influence maybe just sort of very much from this side of the atlantic right is that like you know neobanks were had the bar was really low in the uk in terms of the quality of banking so as neobanks were able to come out and bring out better quality services etc they were successful and there were only as there are only a few banks in in the in the in the uk to take that formula and apply it in the US has, has proven to be a failure. One is because, again, it's, it's, uh, the incumbent banks caught up pretty fast. You know, my mobile app with JP Morgan Chase is actually really quite good, right? And so Bank of America, Wells Fargo, looking at, uh, all the companies out there like FIS and Fiserv, you know, they, invested heavily in the technology and the infrastructure. And it's now at this stage, it's caught up. So the question is what the neobanks have been really struggling with in the US is like, essentially, what is a differentiated consumer value proposition? What's 10x about what they do versus banks in the US are doing? And given that there are, you know, so many very large banks with deep pockets that can make those investments, you know, essentially, it's a much tougher um, competitive envir- environment. So I think a lot of the early stage neobanks kind of got to market because 
it was much harder for the incumbents to move and they could use technology and they could use UX to gain a competitive advantage at that point in time. But, you know, what sustains that? Like once everyone else sort of caught up, really at the end of the day, the challenge is they're really they're really suffering from a differentiated consumer value proposition. Again, that's where the marketing kicks in. So, you know, um, it, you know, once once sort of technology catches up with, you know, and, and gets adopted in all of these companies, including these big incumbents, it really gets back to, you know, how well you know your customer, how well you're solving your customer's problem. And that probably is less about technology and more about insights around customer needs and and how you can better solve their problem than how they're solving it today. Yeah, I, lo- I love that, Sean, but I- insights are like just the best like when you get them they're they're gold they're just amazing and the, the deeper and more scalable they are the better um I, I i love that part of the conversation and i think it's a this is a, a great uh segue into the next part of the conversation um the i i think one of the things that we were moving towards Dan in our last conversation was the idea of the the credit unserved and the people who weren't um really captured by any existing infrastructure or or um institution. And I was just wondering, Sean, if you could maybe walk us through a little bit of your experience with, with Red Wage and what you what drew you to the problem, because uh, the problem is often the most interesting thing. Um, and, and maybe just walk us through your early experiences of that, and maybe we'll we'll take the conversation from there. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I I, I think uh, you know in the days in the in the in the late noughties when um, I, I started Red Wage, I had worked at Western Union for many years, serving you know consumers that were primarily immigrants from other countries looking to send uh, money back home. Um, but as you can imagine. Uh, you know, they needed to conduct their business in the U.S. and be able to, uh, you know, do um, do financial transactions. And they were very much attracted to the what we call in the U.S. the alternate financial services environment, the the check cashers of the world, because a lot of people got paid checks and would take their check and go in and cash it and walk out with cash after paying a hefty fee. So it was and still is, but at that time was even more expensive to be poor. Um, and be able to access uh, financial services at that time. So we, at Western Union, we launched out a, a, a prepaid card, which was essentially is technically a bank account where consumers could load money onto their card and they'd get a piece of plastic with either Visa or MasterCard uh, logo on it and be able to spend just like regular folks. And, you know, the the... At that stage, and um, you know, most of these consumers really didn't have access uh, to these types of accounts, and so adoption of those programs were great. Um, but also, you still had issues of consumers being quite suspicious of bank and the security of cash. And not everywhere like took credit cards, right? Even even you know, in the U.S. back in in those days, you know. So in, when I formed Red Wage, it was the idea of uh, a concept called a payroll card, where you could go to employers and who were still paying certain segments of their employees by check, and allow them to deposit the funds instead on a card, so they could get a payment instrument 
help them avoid check cashing fees. But, you know, the value prop to the employer was it would also save money, do right for their employees, etc. One of the things we learned back in those days is I think employers cared a lot less about their employees than what we had hoped. Um, we had a value proposition where we would ask the employer to pay a dollar a month per employee so we could avoid uh, feeing um, a lot of the cardholders, which was how the economic models of these things would normally work. And I think we got a lot of like, yeah, we actually don't care. That's their problem type of response, right? We, Given the growth of payroll cards in, in the days since, thankfully, it, feel, it does seem like that that sentiment has shifted to a degree. Um, I think when you look at the U.S. today, um, given that, you know, when I started Red Wage, those are very much the early days of prepaid. Um, I listened to an interview recently done by Matt Harris of Bing Capital Ventures, who ran his own uh, VC fund at the, back in those times. And he was one of the only fintech investors. I mean, it's so much so, I think he felt like maybe he was doing something wrong because nobody else was in it. How that world has changed, right? And there have been a couple of tipping points to that, right? Um you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the iPhone, I think, was a massive tipping point in that. The growth of digital wallets, you know, the fact that it e- uh, where the U.S. needed to actually um, make the investment in, in, in chip technology basically required the entire point-of-sale infrastructure of the country to be upgraded, o- replaced and upgraded over a period of five years. And that, you know, that plus you know, technology like the stripes of the world, et cetera, really allowed the explosion of new products and services around prepaid that has happened. So what we've seen in the US is the percentage of folks who really are without a bank account is much, much lower than what it was before. If folks don't have a bank account today, it's it's for reasons where, you know, they don't want a bank account for for reasons other than they can actually get one. Um, but it still is, you know, from from an economic model, it still is expensive to be poor, right? A lot of the economic models of those products require feeing the uh, the consumer, you know. Just like we were talking about credit cards early uh, early on, the dirty the dirty secret of credit cards is all the rewards are basically, you know, are uh, it's more affluent people that are able to take advantage of it, and it's funded by lower income folks, right? Essentially, right. Um, and so, you know, it, when you look at like the market, it's it's in in a relatively short period of time, it's changed almost uh, beyond recognition. Um, and again, technology is very much a large part of that. Um, the the digital wallets are also a large part of that. You know, competition that has come in in general. Um, but you know, the uh, so the days from when we did Red Wage as one of sort of like the early prepaid providers to, you know, your ability to launch a prepaid card today, such as either Uber or Airbnb or Instacart, where everyone has a has a prepaid card, is really, you know, we're talking we're we're talking almost different eras. Yeah. I mean in, in the UK there's uh there's I think there's circa five million um uh, adults who are um let's say invisible to to, to to the credit reference agencies, i.e., they don't have a financial footprint, and that number is actually quite stubborn. It's it's plateaued over the past, let's say, 10, 15 years. It was on a steep decline, and it's it's reached a plateau. So there's clearly a certain dynamic that's stopping people getting access to to, to banking products. Um, I don't want to. I, I don't necessarily agree with. You know, who was it? Bob Hope, who said a bank is a place that will 
give you money if you can prove that you don't need it. Um, I think that's uh, that's pushing it a little bit to, to the extreme because that's largely around lending money. But access to basic banking facilities is still, there are still barriers in, in the UK to, to that. Now, some of those are uh, are cultural, but some, some people are afraid of, of stepping into that market and actually opening up themselves to potential uh, uh, ability to, to get into debt. But there's certainly a, a push towards offering what I call some credit builder products that will that will allow people to build that credit uh, reference agency visibility that will then uh, open up that virtuous circle of being able to access uh, 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 more affordable products, both debit and credit products. Um, it's early days, uh, but I, what we're certainly seeing is that some of the uh, the payment service providers are are starting to eke into that space. So the likes of Apple Pay, Google Pay, uh, I think. Tesco and, Tesco and Sainsbury's have now their own equivalents. MS Money have their, their own uh, payments service provision. Not, I, and I, by that, I don't necessarily mean a current account or a credit card, but an actual payment mechanism that links into another and into another product. I think that's what's going to change the market in the UK. Um, as I say, it's early days, but yeah, it's it's, it's quite interesting that that number of invisible individuals is uh, yeah quite sticky. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would say in the U.S. is that you know when when you peel back the the onion as to what are the segments of consumers that are, you know, essentially unbanked. You know, there there's certainly going to be a, a segment of consumers that you know don't want to be banked or are quite suspicious of banks, right? And so for them, cash is the sort of best control mechanism that they have. And, you know, even though we see the usage of cash as a tender type, like fall dramatically in the US, I think there's always going to be a stubborn segment out there for whom cash is 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 king. And then, of course, you're always going to have like new consumers, you know, coming into the market. I mean, given the size of the US, I, I don't know what the number is, but there's probably somewhere in the region of like two to three million new 18-year-olds, right, every year, right? Uh, that's a lot of folks who are now and who are now adults they may not act like adults but they are legally adults right and so now they can sign up for financial services products in and of themselves so what i think what, what we'll see is and, and i agree with your point is is that i think you're going to see over the next few years a lot of the sort of like um very non-traditional or or, or or entities that maybe have not been as active in financial services and payments get a lot more active um, in those markets where they have access to large data sets. So it's very interesting. You see with Apple and their sort of buy now, pay later, you know, they, they got their training wheels by having Goldman Sachs do the underwriting for their Apple card and the training wheels came off on that, but they learned on it. So guess what? Apple today are under, is underwriting their buy now, pay later. So they've learned, right? They learned from someone else and now they're applying all that logic. Um, you know, we're going to see Amazon, right? No one knows probably more about your purchase history than Amazon, right? And you're going to see Amazon, I think, getting much, much more into looking to apply these types of solutions um, in the marketplace. And, you know, part of the trick was, and, and in the early days back in Amex, when it was there, one of the tricks that, one of the things that really built the Amex franchise was Amex was one of the few people who would actually give a charge card to, you know, a young person coming out of college. And, you know, the fact that you were catching that person at that point in time where they, where they were the only person who would give you access to credit, 
probably, if you look at those cohorts, the amount of people who've stuck with Amex over the years, that's probably a really, really high retention rate. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting statistic in the UK as well that uh, people who open a student account generally stay banking with, with that, that same provider Absolutely. for the entirety Absolutely. of their life. So I so, think, yeah, you know, yeah. in, in, if you're looking to build a financial services franchise, you know, today, mm-hmm. you know, a, and granted there's competition in every single segment, but where you're going you're gonna to have the most um, uh, opportunity to influence and build loyalty really is with that younger consumer segment, because that can be their very much their first exposure. Um, to a financial services product. It, it just reminded me there of recent, like uh, Bank of Ireland had a lot of problems trying to get their infrastructure in place and be competitive. And therefore you had that ineffectual incumbent. Revolut card came in, I think over a million people now have a Revolut card in Ireland. It's a big deal. And then Revolut have now a card where you can give a card to your kid. And I'm just thinking... They're Revolut customers now, your your kids. Like they might get their first student loans, they might get their holiday loan from Revolut, and now they're going to start a relationship with Revolut. And that's really uh, an interesting precursor for, for what you're saying about the future. Um, I, I was just thinking as well, uh, Sean, about the um, ability to see and not see opportunity. Um, I, like I think it was uh, Dan taking the point that many people are credit invisible because they don't have a credit score and they can't thus get get started into this into the system. It's an example where the data is blind and therefore management is kind of blind to it. And um, and Sean, you said something recently a couple of times about data sometimes hides insight; it it, it doesn't reveal. Um, I was wondering if maybe that's something you could just. It, open up a little bit for us on i think it's a challenge in 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 all organizations where like it's it's great to be data driven and i'm most certainly a data geek as as much as anyone and i love playing around with spreadsheets and i'm still trying to figure out how to write certain macros um so data is wonderful in that you know it it helps you kind of reveal certain trends etc but it, it doesn't really yield the insights that you're looking for uh, at least I believe, versus being able to go out and sort of go out and talk to the customer, right? So, you know, part of the challenges with data is particularly if you use an averages, you know, and, and looking at profiles, you may actually end up creating a profile of a customer that actually doesn't exist because that's just what the data says. Um, so I think the trick is how do you first start to, rather than putting you know, data is the place where you go fishing to start instead, you know, going out, talk to your customers, try to understand what is where they are in their journey, what problems they're trying to solve, and try to use data in terms of being able to, you know, understand their behaviors in those situations, you know, gives you a lot more context. And I think this is part of the challenge around uh, a lot of very, a lot of really big companies. And it's at times where you're building out a, you know, a very sort of, you know, deep and sophisticated sort of like, you know, data science team, um, you can get like, you can get very much lost in the, in, in all the details of what those numbers are saying to you, but you may lose sight to what's actually happening outside the walls. Right. So, you know, as a, as a, you know, taking the scientific method, it's about formulating hypotheses, understand what your assumptions are, going out and validating your assumptions. Um, but 
you know, really good data people I've worked with in the past have really learned how to, you know, go back and forth between it's a little bit being ambidextrous with your brain, being able to go out and actually talk to consumers and then go look at the you know, consumers again and, and, and try to validate uh, those assumptions. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, big companies are very much uh, guilty of it, but I think it's one of the challenges as with smaller companies, as well as they scale, um, you have more people around. You're looking at a lot more of, 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 of the data. You're spending a lot more of your time inside the building than actually outside the building talking to your customers. Uh, it's part of the role, I think, as a, as a CEO of a scaling up company is how do you make sure that you don't lose that, like, you know, the, the cut customer North Star and the customer voice and really bring it inside the company and you're not spending way too much time talking to each other. Uh, so, I mean, for, for, for what it's worth, I think one of the key challenges with, with data is the missingness at, at, at non-random and the, the bias, the inherent bias that, that exists in, in real, real world data because data is generated by actual customer behavior, but it's also generated by decisions which are made off the back of that data in the first place. Uh, so data coverage is, is it's a big, it's a big uh, challenge for organizations uh, and and the ability to generalize decisions based on that partial coverage is is really what's where where the risks are. Um, the analogy I always give is that if I I, I can lose my keys on the streets, I'm not going to be looking for my keys where there's a lamppost just because I can see underneath there. Right, there's, there's a whole a whole uh, street which is not covered by light where I could have lost the keys. So that that analogy uh, carries across in terms of data which is used to make informed or not informed decisions uh, because what we find is that the the segments of the population that are data rich are precisely the ones that we don't necessarily need that data richness to be rich on um, which goes which goes back into the underserved population uh, uh, conversation which is where the the, uh, the vicious circle comes in uh, so it's the ability to not analyze data per se, but to have generalizable insight from the data that we have. Um, now, and then also be very well informed on where those those uh, those uh, algorithms that we we base on data do not generalize. So be very very conscious and cognizant and informed of what's the limitation of data driven decisioning, and actually then inform. Okay, how do we see that data space if we do want to use that data? going forward. So is that through uh, champion challenger campaigns? Is it through uh, uh, control cell methodology? Um, to Sean, to your point, do we go and speak to customers to do some market research to, to generate that data? Uh, but that, that's, that's really where uh, some of the strategic thinking needs to happen. Hmm. Sticky end of the wicket. Um, I, I'm just thinking of this uh, data going into a large language model and then how it becomes a further distorted in in that process um definite definite concern yeah absolutely i mean data has a habit of like creating its own reversion to a mean right mm. but it's a mean that may not actually be the mean that's out there right in the world now granted if you have a very very clear understanding of the customer segment you're serving and 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 you're able to get like very deep and that's your starting point and you're staying in that segment, you know, you're, the data you've gathered, you've probably got the deepest insights on that customer segment, you know, of anyone out there. The challenge is, is when you're starting to take that 
and try to basically, you know, infer that data on how other people behave. You know, the example I give is, you know, companies that are like you're sitting around the management table and in a very New York type of way, you're basically having a whole bunch of wealthy New Yorkers sort of like trying to understand and and say how people in Ohio behave, right? You know, this is what happens, right? You, you, you know, the data tells you and gives you um, a set of confidence around, uh, around, uh, you know, how you should, how you think you should behave that is just like disconnected to reality. Right. And so that that is that is the danger. Mm. Well, if anything, LLMs are abstraction machines. So we've got to be careful of that. Um, Sean, it, it would strike me that um, that point about living in the data and living in the real world is a kind of predictor of whether someone is going to be successful or not, or a program is going to be successful or not. Uh, I think that'd be from your nodding. I'm going to say I think that's fair. Um, again, you've operated at the highest levels of of international finance and the startup level is there are there any other kind of oh, predictors of whether a program is going to be successful or an executive is going to scale yeah i mean it's it, you bring up a really great um uh point uh, uh paul because sometimes sometimes whether the 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 program's going to be successful or, or or scale and whether the executive is successful can actually be two very different things right um so you know if I, if we talk about things from a product standpoint at a at a like what is it that um the tools that executives can use to um predict whether a project is going to be successful or not, or a product or service is going to be successful or not. The key thing I would sort of give advice to uh, folks is really kind of do a, do an awful lot of testing with consumers. A lot of like, you know, lean startup tools and, and methodologies are really, really great skill sets to learn for executives that you really don't, you know, enterprise executives don't really get to the chance to learn that. But when you're living in the startup world, you kind of learn it by default. Get out there and talk to your customers, right? And run lots of experiments and uh, to see whether, you know, customers are, are actually going to do versus what they say they do, right? So th- oh, yeah. that's that's the big thing I would say to folks that, you know, <laughs> if you want to learn, if you want to be successful, you want that project to be successful, you know, it's really go out and experiment, go talk to your customers, hear what they have to say, test a lot of concepts, right? Because customers are going to tell you whether what you're giving them is a vitamin or actually a painkiller, right? So that's that's the number one thing I would say. I think part of the challenge that, that enterprises have is when it comes to executives and executives being successful is, are they providing the right incentives, right? I'll give you an example from the payments world. You know, there have been times I've seen that, um, uh, you know, manager, product managers or, or business unit managers got rewarded for delivering really great profitability results, right? And how they did that was maybe by raising the credit card interest rate by 20 basis points, right? Like, okay, any, any clown can raise, the, can raise the price. And if consumers are still sticking around, it's going to generate a lot of money. But you can imagine what sort of negative effect that has on the consumer value proposition over time, right? And so I think the one thing for like enterprises really struggle with is what are the right metrics, right? They should be using to measure executives. And how do you know that your card programs are healthy or not, right? And so the you know, 
the rewarding the person who is going to take the shortcut of raising, you know, interest rates a few basis points and the next guy does that and the next guy does that is not really investing in making sure you're developing like really compelling consumer value propositions. And so, you know, that is that that can be hard, right? Like that can seem like easy money. And this is part of like what's happened, you know, with some of the credit card issuers in the US over over the years is they essentially got lazy, right? And so this is always why we want disruptors coming in, new entrants into the market because uh, companies will act, whether they're big or small, whether they've been around 100 years, or around 20 years, they will act in monopolistic uh, 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 fashion unless there is actually really a competitive environment out there. And that, that notion of, a, of, 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 of a, what metrics to track, that, that's actually something that, that we, we talk very much to, to uh, clients here as well. People talk in the UK, I don't know if it's a term in the US as well, customer value. Um, intrinsically, what, what people mean here is, is value of a customer, not a value to the customer. Now, there should be a sweet spot where it's a win-win situation. I don't think it often is. I think quite the opposite. Those metrics, which define customer value, quote, unquote, are very much to, 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 the, to the benefit of the business, but there's a big question mark as to whether they're to the benefit of the customer. So really, customer value is, should be thought in, in, and the metrics that, that measure that should be thought of, a, of that sweet spot that actually delivers both. Um, and I, in the UK, I don't think we're there yet. I, th- I think there's still a way to go. I think I think in the US it's probably less of an issue because we, you know what we've seen is like the biggest share, the biggest indicator of whether you're serving your customers or not is whether they're purchasing from you or purchasing from someone else, right? So having like large numbers of competitors in any market environment is probably the best guarantee of of uh, for companies to deliver customer value that I've seen. I, I think, Sean, you just have to remind me of uh, this week uh, Visa Mastercard news. Is that between them, uh, their fees will now amount to ninety-four billion dollars. Um, this is up from twenty twelve, where it was thirty-three billion dollars. So a nearly tripling of uh, of fees in that time. And uh, you know, their I, I guess case for this is that they provide services in in line the way I think about them, which is, you know, identity services, fraud services, you're using them online. They've got a lot of kind of invisible services that you don't see as an end user that they've been invested in. But I, I can't, I read that line and I just went, I just, Jeff Bezos's voice entered my brain saying, your margins, my opportunity. And I'm thinking, oh my God, that is such an opportunity. And it's in the same week when Visa announced the new stablecoin infrastructure play that they're going to make uh, a lot of that infrastructure in the background kind of disappear with with the new uh, blockchain type solution. And and I, I I'm just thinking about what happens to the innovation here, where you've got the potential. Like if you said to somebody, "Hey, I've got a hundred billion dollars in fees." For a service here that's largely invisible to people and is delivered online, um, and I've got blockchain, I've got generative AI, I've got fintech stacks, I've got banking as a service platforms. I, I'd be wondering what network is going to disrupt this network. And I, I, I you know, you've already said the the two names that are top of my list, which is Apple and Amazon, right? And 
And, you know, everyone thinks the monopoly is unassailable till it falls. So Nokia was unassailable until iPhone came out. And then everyone went, oh, okay, that's a pretty cool phone. The second iPhone came out, Nokia was like really sliding. Third iPhone came out, Nokia was in real trouble, right? Just three iterations of one iPhone. And I'm just kind of thinking, you know, um, uh, it's, it's a provocation. I'm not asking for an answer here. But my provocation is with an opportunity that size, like a disruption has to come. There's just too much money on the table. Yeah, listen, it, it, like Visa and MasterCard have been have done a remarkable job of of essentially further embedding, um, you know, their yeah. essentially like monopoly in, in in the U.S. And you know, the shift to sort of like online and mobile payments has given them an opportunity to, you know, because some things are very are certainly very useful. Um, tokenization is very important, right? It helps with uh, fraud and risk management. Um, but uh, many of the other services, I think some merchants would say, are probably dressed up to be, you know, more sort of plumbing and now you're you're charging fees for that. Um, you know, the the when you think about um, the opportunity to disrupt Visa and MasterCard, I think a lot of uh, the conversation a lot of time is focused on, you know, developing additional plumbing and what the opportunity is to do that. And there are additional networks out there. Um, in the US, uh, over 10 years ago, um, a, a law came out, the Durban Amendment, that required the addition of another network onto all debit cards. And there are debit card networks out there. I think what you've seen is that, you know, Pricing, um, the debit card network pricing is maybe not as competitive as um, it could be to take share. And probably because many of the ownership of those uh, networks are also quite tight with Visa and MasterCard from a business standpoint. Um, so I think actually technically it's possible to build an alternative alternative plumbing. It gets back to, though, at the end of the day, you've got to get those payment types into the hands of consumers. Yeah. And I think to your point, this is where the opportunity is really for the Apples and the Amazons of the world. The question is whether they're going to come to the market, which it doesn't appear at this point, if whether they're going to come to the market at a at a price point to merchants that's substantially less than what Visa MasterCard charges. Currently, their their interchange or what they charge merchants is the same, if not slightly more than what Visa and MasterCard charge. So the game, when I look at fintech over the last 10 years compared to the days when I was at American Express, at American Express, we would say payments have to work for not only the network, it had to work for the, for the issuer, the customer, and it had to work for the merchant. Over the last 10 years, really the merchant has been sort of essentially been sort of scratched from that equation. And it's the merchant that has been funding through interchange a lot of the innovation that's happened in the U.S. And so merchants have over the years kind of given up fighting this through the legal battles that they've gone through, um, uh, and, 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 and maybe even been precluded from suing in the future. And so now merchants are very much in the case of, uh, accepting all forms of payment because they don't want the customer to walk out the door, but the cost of those payments are quite high, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think in the U.S., we're in this sort of like cycle of, um, interchange will stay high and, um, Interchange is a, is a, is a very large driver at the economic models for fintechs yeah. in the, in the U.S. So it's not clear to me that there are going to be companies 
who will come out and they'll, with their innovation, that's dramatically going to look to cut interchange because they're probably going to depend on interchange for a very large part of their revenue source. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the point here is that this is a transnational uh, uh, network far more than, than, than the banking system itself. So uh, I, I generally can't see short of the whole central clearing system getting disrupted and, and by some form of peer-to-peer payment mechanism. Um, I, I, I can't see that there will be a new disruptor in the space unless, Sean, as you say, the likes of Amazon or, or, uh, or Apple decide actively that they want to get into the space, which, as you say, I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing. So, uh, Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we have, we have some – in the U.S., there are some um, pretty substantial peer-to-peer applications, Venmo and Cash App are, are two. Um, uh, both have come out and issued um, plastic cards on the Visa MasterCard network. So, you know, they are an interchange when the spend is that yeah, way. Exactly, or, yeah. or if you yeah. do pay using the QR codes, their actual rates are the same, if not higher, than what Visa MasterCard mm-hmm. charges for essentially a debit transaction. So, you know, we, we've not seen that, right? We've not seen that, right? And at the end of the day, I think also, you know, U.S. is such a large competitive market. The cost of customer acquisition is very high. Um, you know, customer, cost of retaining customers is high. You know, I don't think a lot of the economic models out there could afford to, you know, say, let me take a big haircut to interchange, right? Unless they're able to, you know, find other ways to acquire customers cheaper. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in the U.S., we're, we're stuck with it for quite a while. All right, folks, listen, we're banging up on the hour here. Um, I think the hour is our culturally defined limit for how long anyone should be talking at somebody else uh, well-trained in our legacy systems of school. So, Sean, listen, pleasure speaking with you today. Um, Thanks so much for joining us. And Dan, thanks again for being our co-host. If there's any questions, I'm sure we're going to follow up with one another and try and raise a couple of these topics a little further. So thanks everyone for joining us again today for our series of interviews, Credit Shift with leading uh, speakers and practitioners in the world of credit. Thanks for joining us for that amazing conversation. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss any of these future leaders talking about the changes in the credit and collections business. We'll also be pushing out weekly updates so that you get all the news as it happens in the industry. And also, why not drop into webio.com, see what we're doing these days.